What a privilege for me to come back after 500 years and hear such beautiful call sounds from married people. You see, when I lived, you had to be a monk or a nun to sing that well. It's, I believe some of you perhaps aren't monks or nuns. In fact, that is one of the great fruits of the Reformation, is that as a consequence of the gospel, even people who were married were allowed to sing hymns. And so I encourage you to make music. For I liken music second only to theology itself. By music, you drive away the power of temptation. Even the devil will flee you when you sing. So some of you should be singing more often. <laughs> But the hard thing is to get a German to sing. Oh. First, you have to lubricate his voice box with two or three tankards of ale. And then uh, he will make a noise, certainly not joyful, and certainly not to the Lord. But I went to those places <laughs> where Germans were accustomed to making such music, and I took those melodies, and I wrote new words to them. And by this means, the Germans literally sang their way into the Reformation. It was certainly my music, more than my sermons, that led to the revival in Germany. And so I encourage you to sing. Sing. It is a means by which God makes his word come alive within us. And it comes alive with us in a communion of saints of which we are certainly a part and for which this building was created. For there are very few other places in this community where you will gather simply for the purpose of praising God. And to that end, those who created this space knew the importance of praise. And so I encourage you to sing. Sing with all your heart. It may be that there are still some of you here today who still labor under that old and dull theology, thinking that somehow everything depends on you. And I am thankful that God has sent Katie and me back here today to help lift that burden from your shoulders so that even if you are a Norwegian, you can still give thanks to God with joy. <laughs> Although I must admit having met a few of them in paradise, you do carry an unusual burden. <laughs> 500 years ago, following my own awakening to the faith, I was aware of a confusion in our time that led people to believe the wrong things about God. And for this purpose, I wrote up 95 statements called the 95 Theses, nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg with the hopes that we would discuss these matters and come to some reasonable conclusion. Uh, sadly, I was working with church people, and reasonableness among church people is <laughs> not common. <laughs> and to this end, uh, you, of course, have some experience in this town. But... Let me not go into that in too much detail, but to say that it is a part of the history of the body of Christ to disagree. And so I wanted there to be conversation about these matters, and it led not to conversation, but to conflict. 
But as a consequence of my posting those theses, soon the money that was used to build a much larger building in Rome than you have here, but using money from Germans, and it didn't take the Germans too long to realize that their guilt was helping Italians build some monument. And even a dumb German doesn't take too long to come to his senses there, and they quickly stopped doing this. And then I became a source of trouble, which led me to an event which we call the Diet of Worms, where I was brought before the Holy Roman Emperor, and there made these powerful words which you are so familiar with, when I knew that my conscience could not tolerate this process of confusion any further, regardless of how powerful the emperor himself might be, who was there in my presence. And I said, with the Bible in my hand, my conscience is convicted by the word of God. If you cannot, by reason of the mind or the Bible, prove to me the error of my ways, then I cannot, I will not recant. So help me, God, here I stand. And with those words, it marked the beginning of the end in many ways for me, but the beginning of God's power to bring about a reformation, not only in Germany, but also to your ancestors brought that message here and made possible this marvelous heritage of which you share so personally the grace of God and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, I certainly was not free at that time, Dr. Luther. At this moment, my name was Katharina von Bora, and I was a nun in the Nimshin convent just outside of Leipzig. For you see, uh, being a nun meant that we were secluded from the outside world. Why, we had little contact even with our family, even with our friends. On Sunday mornings, we had to stand behind the latticed windows, and we had no connection with anyone except for our sister nuns. But you see, our vows were to chastity, were to poverty, and of course we had to take these vows seriously, and we had to pray on our knees for several hours every day, and of course we needed to also beat the sin out of ourselves so that we would be pure and righteous and good for God. This was our daily practice, of course singing and praying of was much of the time spent very well, of course, but it was also difficult to understand how we could think of another life anywhere else except in this convent. It was very strict, I might add. And at 16, when I took my vows, I thought that I was in a place of God's goodness and splendor and in his glory. But then we began to hear about this man, Dr. Martin Luther. Why, we received his writings. At that time, 
the printing press had been developed and all of the things that Luther was explaining and writing were being printed and came into the convents and monasteries throughout Germany. Now you might wonder why these were allowed to come into our hands, but I believe the abbess herself might have been interested in what he was writing. We knew that Dr. Luther had been declared a heretic by the Pope, and so several of us nuns became even more interested in what he was saying. <laughs> Who is this man? What is he telling us? It promoted a new way of thinking. And soon our consciences became convicted by a new message, and we could no longer remain in the convent. For you see, he wrote in his sermon on the freedom of a Christian that a person should not live for themselves. Instead, we should be living for all humanity. Where was humanity there in that convent? Why, our days were spent in these kind of monotonous times of prayer and singing Latin songs, and then we took vows of silence. We couldn't speak to our sister nuns. Who were we helping? Were we serving anybody else? And when Luther wrote, next of all, that a good work is one which does your neighbor good, we began to consider what were the good works that we were performing. Was it just for God and no one else? How was our life and our purpose giving to anyone out in the world? Was there some place in this world where we were needed even more? Well, and then when Dr. Luther stated that we would not get any extra credit by remaining unmarried, we began to be very restless. <laughs> oh, the thought of being married and having a husband and children at our feet be oh, began to emerge, and all of those natural suppressed longings were right in front of us. And we began to consider, could we not, as women, be more profitable, more helpful, more in service to God by being a wife and a mother? As we began to ponder these things, it became impossible for us to remain in the convent. And the daily prayers began, began to be a daily drudgery. <laughs> we began to think about like this text we read already, that the law brings us into more consciousness of our sin. And we were even more conscious of our sin and in this conflict with ourselves as we began to consider what was outside those stone walls. Later on, I remembered thinking about my life in the convent after I was married to Dr. Luther, and I would consider what I had lived as a nun. And I remembered while I was on my knees washing the floor, I remembered my praying on my knees. And then instead of beating the sin out of myself, I found myself now beating the bread dough. <laughs> and instead of taking a vow of silence, I found myself praying my children would take a vow of silence. <laughs> <laughs> this was in great contrast, you can see from being in this lifestyle to being now married and in a family and with children. But back to the convent. 
You see, we couldn't walk out the front door. Now, our relatives feared for their lives. When they heard of our, our disagreement with being in this lifestyle, they said, stay with Christ. He is your bridegroom. And don't consider that there would be a man out there that would want to marry a renegade nun. <laughs> so we had to conceal all of our intentions. Why, we had heard of other nuns and monks who had tried to escape from the convent and monasteries, and they were brought back, maybe killed, but for sure punished by having to lie on their bellies on the floor while everyone walked over them on their way to Mass. We did not desire this treatment, so we concealed our intentions. And as we would meet, we'd sing these songs, God grant him a disastrous year who forces me to be a nun. <laughs> it was getting to be a very tempestuous time. And so as we met, we planned somehow that we would find a way to get out of here. We couldn't think of anything else except to get to word our word to Dr. Luther, could he help us? He got word back to us that he indeed would help us to escape from the convent. We didn't know how, but we had a time and a date. It was now the night before Easter Sunday, 1523, April 4th. The 10 o'clock bells rang, and all the other nuns went and sang their Latin songs. But we scurried up to my room where we prepared for our escape. The means of grace was a rope which hung out of my window down the stone wall. And all nine of us nuns, even in these long gowns, crawled down that rope and then stood waiting to see what would happen. Pretty soon, we could see the outlines of a wagon approaching the convent. It was Leonard Kopp. He was the local merchant bringing goods to the convent for Easter Sunday. Was this our way of salvation? As we crept through the grass in the courtyard, the moonlight was shining down, and we saw this wagon, and behind it was another wagon with barrels. And he said, quickly, ladies, climb on. But as we got closer, those barrels had a stench that just about drove us back up the wall. Empty, smoked herring barrels. <laughs> He said, if you can, climb into one of these barrels. I looked at my sister nun's hips. I looked at the barrel, and I said, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. <laughs> he said, never mind. Crouch down next to the barrels. He covered us with a tarp, and there we remained all night long, traveling over bumpy roads as we had to pass from Duke George's territory into Duke Frederick's territory to see Duke Frederick. He was in sympathy with the Reformation. He helped Dr. Luther escape to the Wartburg Castle. And so we knew we would be safe once we crossed that border. Well, they didn't care about a stinky wagon, and they passed on through. And now it was Easter Sunday morning. We saw and heard the bells ringing, and the steeples were gleaming in the, in the sunlight, the steeples of Torgau, Germany pealing the songs of resurrection. So we burst up out of our tombs, I mean the herring barrels, and we sang, Hallelujah, Christ is risen, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. 
For now we were free Christian women, but we were in a secular world. And for freedom, we knew Christ had set us free for a future. We did not understand. We did not know. But we were now full of courage and anticipation of a life lived for God's purposes, for the good works he had prepared for us to do. Paul writes to the church in Ephesians that he, God, has prepared good works beforehand that we might walk in them. And to mm -hmm. this end, Katie and the other nuns who escaped that night went into a future where only God's word was sufficient for them. And they trusted that word, and the outcome was they bore fruit for the Reformation. For one of the great things that happened in the time of the Reformation in terms of good works is this. Marriage and family becomes as important, yea, even more important than being a nun among a priest or a pope. For it is through this means that God in the book of Genesis has decreed that we should bear fruit. For there he says to us, he says, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply and to take dominion over the earth. There is no mention in there of monastic life or any other kind of severe existence. And to this end, the first good work that these women performed was to simply become married and to enjoy the love of their husband. And the means that followed was to have children and to create families and homes. But this is the Reformation. This is the fruit of the Reformation. It's the fruit of the gospel that takes us out of hiding, wherever it may be, and brings us into life with God in the fullness that God intends. Now, I myself also did not understand this. I was raised in the same confusion that Katie was raised. And for me, when I was brought to church by my father, I was aware that I had to be performing quite seriously to please God. I would stand quite erect, hoping that he would find my behavior good. And unfortunately, the music was boring, the worship was dull, everything was in Latin. I became so restless that my father became concerned about me, not so much for my salvation as much as for his reputation. And he came up with a plan to control my behavior. And he called the plan his stick-to-it plan. This was the secret of his plan. <laughs> he had a stick. And whenever I didn't stick to his plan, he would stick it to me. Oh, the pain of letting my father down I carried with me all afternoon. And so now I would stand quite still hoping to please him not out of any desire for serving God, but out of a threat of punishment. And then as I got older, he realized that threatening me at one end was not enough. So he reminded me that sometimes we had to put a carrot on the end of a stick to get a pig to go into the barn. I said, what does that have to do with me, Father? I'm not a pig. I don't like carrots. I'm not going to the barn. But I know. But you do like your mother's cakes and candies, and if you're good on Sunday morning, you'll get a reward when we return home. <laughs> now I knew it was on the end of the stick for me. 
and I would be standing there during worship, beaming so brightly. I think the pastor thought he was getting through to me. <laughs> the only thing getting through to me was my mother's cooking. But my father learned that he could control my behavior either with the threat of punishment on one end or the lust for reward at the other. And I came to think that God, like my father, also uses a stick for the same reasons, to manipulate our behavior. After all, what is hell? That dreadful place you have to go to when you die if you're not beloved of God and you make you go swimming in a lake of fire. Oh, even if you don't like to swim, there's no air conditioning there. Oh, what a terrible place. Well, what wouldn't you do to possibly avoid such a terrible outcome for your life? Well, you might come to the Bible study on Wednesday night. <laughs> or go learn more about the youth trip on Thursdays. If you thought that would keep you from the fires of hell, then certainly you would do such a thing. And then, heaven, oh heaven, heaven where we heard the streets are paved with gold. I think some of you here in Story City might be happy with streets paved with anything. <laughs> Gold, something we revere is so precious here on earth, which is simply a cobblestone in glory. Oh, what might you not do to gain such a glorious outcome for your life? Well, you can see, this is how my mind was affected. Believing that God punished us with hell or rewarded us with heaven. And to this end, I was living my life. After I finished my primary education, I went to the university to study law. And my father said to me, Martin, you understood the theology of the stick quite well. Well, how is that, Father? I asked. He said, well, no one knows how to stick it to others quite as well as lawyers. <laughs> I was on my way back to the university one evening when there was a terrible thunderstorm that blew up around me. Bolts of lightning, terrible sounds and claps, and then one hit right near me, almost killing me. I fell to my knees. I prayed to St. Anne. St. Anne, have mercy on me. I'll become a monk. No point in praying to God. He just missed me once with that bolt of lightning. Why give God a chance to re-aim and reload? So I entered the monastery. Oh, if a person could be saved by monkery, it would be Martin Luther. I would do whatever I could to make myself miserable. I would beat myself, go without food, do whatever I thought I could do to show God how worthless I was willing to be in his sight. But I think some of you Lutherans have taken this one step further. You've said to yourselves, if I can gain heavenly glory by being miserable on earth, then how selfish it is of me to keep that all alone. Yes, why not get married? And make someone else as miserable as you are. And if that's not enough, you can even have children and ruin their lives as well. <laughs> and think of Judgment Day when you come before St. Peter and he looks at you and he says, Oh, well done, thou good and miserable servant. <laughs> I myself had no time for misery. I lived in constant fear that God was looking for an opportunity to judge me again. I would even go to my confessor, Staupitz. And, and Staupitz would have to listen to my confession sometimes for two or three hours. Uh, one time he got so bored, he said, Brother Martin, these confessional times are so boring. Why don't you go out and commit some interesting sins? 
Now, don't you think that on the 100th anniversary of this building, your pastors could have an interesting sin week? <laughs> yes, this is your week to do interesting sins. <laughs> I don't think any of you would miss that Sunday. I had no time for interesting sins. I constantly lived in fear that God was looking for another excuse to strike me dead. Then Stauppet shook me. He said, Luther, you spend so much time meditating on how miserable you are. Why don't you instead meditate on Christ and on his cross? See how he became miserable for your sake. Everything changed that day for me. I went back up to my bedroom and I opened up the book. And I read again the passage that Pastor Tom read for us today. How we are made right with God, not through any efforts of our own, but by the righteousness that comes from God in Christ, whose blood shed for you and for me on the cross cleanses us from our sin. That night I also read in other places how we are made right with God. Before this time, the word righteousness was a word I despised. I even hated God. But now I knew that righteousness was the sweet sound that God gave to me of his gift of grace. Uh, that night when I was in that room, the whole room was filled with light, not like the light that came from that bolt of lightning. This was a light within as the Holy Spirit was transforming me through the word and I began to see myself as God sees me. And that night I discovered that God does carry a stick. But this, this is the stick which God carries. And who suffered on account of this stick? It was not you. And it was not Martin Luther. God suffered on this stick. God became what you are on this stick. God became your sin on this stick. And what does God give you in exchange? God gives you all that he is. His holiness, his righteousness, his purity. That night in my room, I realized for the first time that when God looked at Martin Luther, he saw someone he loved as much as Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when God looks at you, that God sees someone he loves as much as Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you are as holy and pure, innocent as Jesus is? If you believe this, then you believe the gospel. For that is the good news of which Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the good news to me. And to all who believe, this is the good news of God for you and for me. That frees us from whatever holds us captive. And lets us receive all that God is for us. It was for this reason that this building was built. That people could come here and hear the good news. And go out into the world and proclaim its message to all who could hear and believe. And it is the good news of this stick. So if some of you today are coming to worship and you're beating yourself up for something you've done in your past, something you forgot, something you said, something you did to someone else, and you're feeling guilty about this and you can't put that stick down, today I invite you to lay that stick down and take up Christ's stick 
follow him. For Christ says to you, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. You will be free in Christ. Or it may be that as you come to worship this day, you remember someone, perhaps in this town, maybe it's a relative, a child, a former wife or husband, someone who hurt you, who stuck it to you in your past, and you remember that pain, and you're nursing that pain, you're thinking about what they did, and it causes you some pleasure to remember someone who hurt you and how you hope somehow you can get even someday. And I invite you also to remember Christ's word from the cross when he said to us who surrounded him, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I invite you also to lay that stick down, that stick of your resentment, and hear the word of Christ for you. I forgive you. I forgive you. You are cleansed by the word that I speak to you. So whether it be guilt or resentment, today is the day we lay that stick down at the foot of the cross. And as you come forward to receive our Lord's Supper, you can simply say to Jesus, Jesus, today, I let you carry my guilt. Jesus, today, I give you all my resentment. And then you go forth in freedom, for freedom Christ has set you free to bring this news to your world, which is controlled by guilt and resentment so powerfully. So as we close in prayer, let us think about these two things, whatever they may be for you, and ask God's help to bring his grace to your need, whether it be guilt or resentment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to atone for our sins on the cross, to become what we are sins, so that we might be what he is, the righteousness of God. And to that end, God, we pray that you will help us this day first to lay our guilt down. If we've been carrying some guilty conscience for whatever it is, we lay it at the foot of your cross, and take up your cross and follow you, freed from guilt. Or if there may be some resentment which we are carrying, some feeling of pain in our past, we now pray this simple prayer that you prayed from the cross, Father, forgive. We name the person or event who has caused us this grief. Father, forgive for that person not know what he or she did. Father, forgive. And to this end, we pray that we may go forth in freedom, in freedom, for truly, you, Christ, have set us free.